If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it. And turn with me uh, to Psalm 97. That's where we're going to be picking it up here this morning. We're in Psalm 97. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one on, on one of the chairs in front of you. It's possible that you don't. Our chairs have gotten rearranged every week for the last two months. So it's possible that some Bibles are missing, uh, but, but I hope you'll find one. Uh, and if you don't have one, uh, uh, we, we'd love for you to take that one. We're, we're Bible people here. Like unapologetically, we're, we're about the Bibles. If you don't own one, that, that's just our early uh, Christmas present to you. Uh, if you don't like that one, just see me after. I got some nice ones. Uh, people leave them behind all the time. We'll, um, this has somebody else's name on it, but that's all right. We'll, we'll, we got black Sharpies too. Anyway, we're in Psalm 97, so stand with me if you will. And we'll set our hearts to hear from this Lord who we just sang about together. This is Psalm 97, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just sang, and honestly, if, if, if I could just express my heart, which you already know, as we were singing that psalm, I had fear in trying to get up here and follow after it. But I also had confidence because the words we just proclaimed that you are with us. And so be here now. You don't need our permission to be in this place. You don't need a certain number of people to gather for you to show up. Lord, you are everywhere. I just pray that you would speak now that we might hear you. We might see you. We might know you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On January 7th, uh, 2018, all right, it was a Sunday. And I kid you not, it was 16 degrees outside that morning. Coldest morning I can ever remember in Columbia, South Carolina. And, and on that morning, a little fledgling band of Christ followers, people, people who, had, who had been called to plant a new uh, Reformed Presbyterian church in Lexington. They were meeting at the, uh, uh, the Pal Palmetto Athletic Center over on North Lake Drive. Uh, that's where they were. They met that morning for what we called a trial run of a worship service. 
Uh, the pastor and his son got there with the trailer. It was filled with all the, all the gear, all the sound equipment, and the chairs, and the pipe, and drape material that we put together, and all the stuff like the kids check-in, and the nursery toys. And, and as they went to unlock the trailer, because it had rained the night before in a really poor lock design, uh, the locks on the trailer were frozen shut. And I promise you that was not something they had in their contingency plan. All right? This is Columbia, South Carolina. We're not supposed to have to deal with that type of stuff. And so they had to hold them in their hands. Hold the, You can see these two people. I mean, it would have, nobody would have ever shown up to the church if they'd seen us in that moment. Holding the locks in our hands and breathing on them to try and thaw them out. We had not packed a hairdryer or anything useful. Volunteers showed up to help set everything up. They got all the curtains set. They put out all the frozen metal chairs. They ran all the wires and the cables for the sound. And at 10.30 a.m., right there in that gymnastics gym, complete with a foam pit and uneven bars, we were called to worship for the very first time together as what was known as the Rivercrest Mission. And we were called together with these words from Psalm 97, verses 1 through 5. It's a call to worship. You see, that was how we started on day one, was with Psalm 97, 1 through 5. You see, Psalm 97, in all its fullness, is a call to worship. That's what it is. It's a call for holy reverence and adoration. It's a call for praise and for thanksgiving. Not just on Sunday mornings. Not just on Sunday mornings. Not just during certain seasons when we, we're red and green a little more often. Not just when we feel like it. It's a call to worship at all times. One writer said, this hymn calls on God's people and indeed the whole world to worship the true God who is King, Judge, and Savior. That's the call here. That is the summons of Psalm 97. It's to worship and it does it in three ways. It does it in three ways. There's three ways that we're going to see the reign of the Lord in this psalm. We see it in His power. We see it in His preeminence, and we see it in His promise. That's where this psalm meets us this morning. It meets us in the power of God, the preeminence of God, and the promise of God. And so as the people of God, right, gathered together, as the church, as the ecclesia, that's the assembly of His people here in the midst of all, all the craziness of life, in the, in, like in the middle of all the mess, okay, and all the busyness and the chaos that is just a, that just is a day in the life of this fractured world, we're called to a bigger vision, we're called to a greater purpose, and we're called to a more beautiful story. And the psalmist does this first by giving us a renewed vision of the one who is calling us. That's what we see in the first five verses. We're being offered a glimpse of a God that, of a God that doesn't, he, here it is, he does not conform to like the popular imagery that the world offers for what a God should be. All right? So he's not just a, a like white-haired, uh, white-bearded sort of grandfather in the sky, not some sort of like needy deity who really, di- who really just needs some followers you know, to sort of amp up his 
<laughs> to elevate his status in the spiritual realm, but it, but it gives us this image of a God who comes really and truly in power. All right, this is the picture we have. Look at that. It says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Listen, clouds and thick darkness bring the imagery of a storm. And that's intentional. The psalmist isn't just haphazardly growing, grabbing at words. He's going, he comes in clouds and thick darkness. It's this, it's this uncontrollable, right? This untamable force. Okay, so we're not talking about like a little summer rain when he talks about this. All right? Clouds and thick darkness are a storm of fury. There's a, there, but there's also a mystery to it too. And it should sort of invoke in our minds, um, it should invoke this idea of God meeting his people at Sinai. There, there's a very real Exodus feel to this imagery. It's that Exodus 13 imagery where the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And if you remember that story, right? We're talking about the Exodus here. The Lord brings them to a mountain. He brings them to a mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And archaeologists, all right, they have found what they think is, or uh, what they believe to be this mountain. It's, it's in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And what it says in Exodus 19, all right, so it's a real place in real space and in real time. What it says in Exodus 19 is that on the morning of the third day, this is the third day there at the mountain, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And here's what it says in Exodus 19 verse 18. It says this, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Okay, so when you're hearing Psalm 97, here it is for us, it needs to be through the lens of the Exodus. Like we need to hear this as an Israelite as, as a person with exodus in our blood, because, because here's what it is. When you see God through the lens of the exodus, you, you don't see a pitiful old man trying to maneuver his people through the wilderness. You see the Lord God Almighty who reigns in power and does as he pleases. And that, right, if that's all we had, if that's all we had, that's terrifying. That's why Solomon writes in Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You remember that verse, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? And sometimes we try to soften that. We do. We, we don't, that's a people, we don't like fear these days. We're not into that. That doesn't sell. That didn't grab a, that doesn't bring a crowd. So we try to soften that. I'm tempted even now to try and soften that word fear. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll soften it by saying fear means awe or reverence. That's what, I, tell me, I'm, don't raise your hand, but I guarantee you you've heard that sermon before. That fear here means awe and reverence. And listen, that's true. So the pastor didn't lie to you. That's true. I've said that before and it's still true. But awe and reverence, if we're real, are just functional synonyms for fear. Okay. All we're doing is playing like semantic games, okay? Because to be in awe of something is to see it as great. It's to see it as great and powerful. To have reverence for something is to deeply respect it. That's what it means to revere something. And so for me to be, so for me to be in awe of the power of, say, like, like, like a mountain lion or a bear. Like, let's say I'm hiking and come upon a bear. Better yet. 
Let's say you and I are hiking. And we come upon a mama grizzly and her cubs. I hope that we can agree. We need to be able to agree on this. That it is both good and right for me in that moment to be afraid. Is that fair? Can we do that? You and me, we're on a hill, walking up, and and we come across this bear. And I promise you the first thing in my mind is, the best case scenario here is that I can run a little faster than you. That's really my only motivation to stay in shape in life. In the face of an apex predator, my only hope is that it doesn't take interest in me. But what a foolish thing it would be for us, for you and me, to have more fear of that bear than of the one who spoke that bear into being. You see, God being all-powerful. I'm I'm sorry, we do. We have neutered God of his power. And I, I get it, man. Power dynamics are scary in the world we live in. Human beings, we're good at manipulating. We're good at corrupting power. We're real good at that. But God being all-powerful, being what we call omnipotent, that's a fearful thing. Because he's not limited in any way. Look there at verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. You know what that means? That means God doesn't have to show up for the fight. Like, there's no struggle with him. I love the, I love the, we use the English Standard Version here regularly. I I love the New International Version translation of that. That's the one I memorized uh, years ago. It says that fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightnings light up the world. That's verse 4. And what happens? Look at what it says. His lightnings light up the world. The earth, what does it do? It sees and trembles. John Calvin in the 16th century pointed out that so much is implied in the expression used, the earth shall see. He says the psalmist declares that they would not succeed. This is the wicked of the earth. That they would not succeed. They would not succeed by any such vain artifice and hiding themselves from God. So not only, okay, does the power of God consume the enemies of God, but his lightnings light up the world in such a way that there's nowhere to run, that there's nowhere to hide. Even the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. So you go and find a cave on a mountain. He goes, fine, just take down the mountain. This is the Lord our God. He is not some pitiful pagan deity. He is not some counterfeit, okay? He is the authentic one, and he, is, and he reigns in power. But that doesn't stop us. Here's the problem. That doesn't stop us from trying to substitute our own ideas for what he should be. So look at verse 6 with me. It says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases that. He says that the heavens announce that he'll set everything right and everyone will see it happen. And he says, glorious, right? The heavens announce that he'll set everything right. That the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. Everyone will see it. All people see his glory. That's a hope-filled statement for the believer. If you sit here today in Christ, that is good news for you. That means at some point in history, regardless of what the world says, everybody's going to go, yep, they were right. Every tongue's going to confess. Every knee's going to bow. Like There's going to be a reckoning in history. 
That is good news. For the follower of Jesus Christ, that's what we long for. Like we've been talking about this lessons and carols thing. Y'all, I hope we don't even get a chance to do it. Weird services freak me out. Like we stick to a really regular order in here. I mean, it's basically the same thing every week, right? We just substitute songs, different message. But I'm a person, I'm a creature of habit. I am praying every day. You're like, man, I want to have Christmas. That's fine. You can have Christmas morning and the clouds will part and Jesus will show up before 1030. That's what I'm praying for. That we have one crazy worship service on Christmas morning because Jesus was like, I'm done. I'm coming back and I'm making it right. So don't be disappointed in me, but that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for you don't get to open your presents with the second family or whatever. Look at what verse 7 it says. It says, all worshipers of images are put to shame. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. And then he says, worship him, all you gods. You see, despite the fact that creation testifies, despite the fact that God's created things testify and witness to a creator, there is still this tendency for us to stir up, for us to manufacture little gods in our minds. We get our eyes so fixed on the temporal things around us, so focused on what we can see that we lose our grip on the eternal. We're short-sighted in that, man. We are limited in that. And so we begin, here's what we do. We begin to trust in the things of the world rather than the one who made the world. We trust in creation rather than creature. We trust in the creation rather than the creator. And let me hear, I want you to hear this. God's not having it. Okay? You know, there's this great scene in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah, he's engaged in this challenge. It's like him versus the prophets of Baal. And it's supposed to be like this big knockdown, drag out fight between the prophet of God and the prophets of Baal. It's like the whole thing has been staged there, right? It's like a big, big deal. People are buying tickets. They want to see it. And the story goes that, that what they're going to do is they're both going to build altars. So the prophets of Baal are going to, are going to build an altar and, and Elijah's going to build an altar. And then they're going, to, and they're going to take a sacrifice and they're going to put it on there. And they're going to call out to their respective gods. And, the, and, and their respective gods are going to pour down fire and consume the offering that's been put there. And the prophets of Baal go first. Uh, I love that Elijah's like, go ahead. Just see how that goes for you. And here's what it says. Just, you, can't just, you don't have to turn there. Just picture this. 1 Kings 18. It says this. They took this, the prophets of Baal, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. All right, so they're committed. All right? From, do anything from morning till noon. That's six hours in biblical time. That's a commitment level that most of us probably wouldn't have. So they're out there and they're giving it, uh, they're giving it a go. And here's what it says. They limped at noon, right? They limped around the altar that they had made. All right, so they're doing this to the point where they're physically exhausted. And Elijah is there. I love this, that he's just there the whole time. Like, this is the greatest show he's ever seen in his life. And, and he's there, and you might remember this, he's there, and what it says is that at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. He's going, maybe y'all aren't loud enough. Maybe that's the problem. You're not doing it right. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, listen to this one, either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. You see what he's doing there? 
He's watching these people chase after their ideas of ultimate security, of ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And he's really sort of taunting them. And, and like the psalmist here in Psalm 97, he's, he's calling on them to see the true and living God. That's really Elijah's desire. And here's the thing. We fall into these same traps all the time. Like we exalt the things of the earth and places in our lives that they can never fulfill. And I'll tell you where. This is, y'all, if you've been around for a minute, you know this is kind of a young church. We've got a lot of young marriage. We've added, I don't know how many babies at this point, And y'all just keep on making them, which is great. Don't stop. We love it. But let me tell you something. One of the primary ways we do this in our world today is we do it with our kids. Our poor kids are being asked to fill that sort of Ecclesiastes 3.11 gap of eternity in our lives. We turn them into our whole identity such that their performance determines our place in the world. And they can't carry that burden for you. We'll do it with our careers. We do it with the neighborhoods we live in. We do it with our football teams. I watched, a football, I watched the fans of a football team have an absolute social media breakdown as if the end of the world was going to happen because of a potential offensive coordinator hire. And I got news for you. He's going to hire him. That's what's going to happen. We do it with our political parties, don't we? We do it with the social media followers, how many likes and such that we get. In a most sad and ironic twist, we do it with our churches and we do it with ministries. How many people do you have on Sunday? How many shoeboxes did y'all pack this year? What's your budget? These are the questions I get more often than anything else in church circles. Justify your existence by the number of human beings in the room. We're constantly chasing after our ultimate meaning and purpose in places and things that were never meant to satisfy, that were never meant to fill the gap of eternity. One thing we tell Matt and Young Life all the time is, I don't care how many people you have in here. If you're doing the Lord's work and you're doing it in this place, that's great. You don't have to brag about numbers and you don't have to feel bad about small numbers. That will never be the case because those things aren't the criteria by which we're meant to judge anything. And Elijah challenges us on this. He calls us out on this. When these things fail to deliver, when our kids fail the test or don't get into the school that we want them to get into or our team loses or our ministries struggle to gain traction and that does happen and we're limping around as if the world is collapsing, Elijah goes, maybe your God is off meditating. Maybe, maybe he's just trying to get his thoughts together, man. Or maybe he's in the bathroom. That one's kind of offensive. Like, I just kind of love the fact that Elijah's like, I think your God's in the bathroom. <laughs> like, maybe your God has his iPad in there playing words with friends, you know? I don't know. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's napping. I like that one. I like that one. Elijah's like, maybe your little God is too burnt out and doesn't have time for you. Either way, the counterfeit gods, these ragamuffin, want-to-be gods of the world, they cannot deliver. They can't. They can't. And, and look at what Psalm 97 says. Here's the response. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Psalm 97 is going, don't worship the middleman. Don't worship the imposter. Even the gods you worship, they should worship the Lord. This is the preeminence of God. You see, nothing compares to Him. Nothing compares with Him. God doesn't campaign, He calls. 
He's not a politician. He's preeminent. And the response, look at verse 8. Zion. Zion is God's people. Zion is God's people. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. He's going often duplicated, never replicated is the Lord our God. And where do we see this most fully and completely? Look at verse 10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. I was up here yesterday morning working on some things, and I got a text from one of our parents. And sometimes that's terrifying. Um, But this was different. This parent had been having a conversation with their child, and the child had asked the question. Listen to this question. Ask the question of how people were able to be saved before Jesus was born. That's a great question around Christmas time, isn't it? If Jesus is the Savior and we look to Him for salvation, how were people saved before Jesus was born? How did, and I think the way he said it was, how did people get to heaven before Jesus? That is a beautiful question. That was a great Saturday morning question. If you ever want to text me on a Saturday morning, let it be that. I know you've got the flu already. Just let it be that. You see, kids understand the brokenness of the world. You hear that? That's in that question. Kids understand the brokenness of the world. They do. That's underneath the question. If people need to be saved, this kid understands that they need to be saved for some reason. Kids understand that. They do. Please don't ever make the mistake of thinking our little ones do not understand the fallout of sin in their young lives. And as much as we want to protect them, as much as we want to shield them, even hide that reality from them, they see it, they feel it, they know it. The fracture of sin is not limited to any one age group. And they ask beautiful questions. They ask these questions that cause us to lean in on the Word of God. Because nature, here it is, nature doesn't have that answer. Like, it can't. The trees in the mountains, they can't answer that question for you. The beautiful sunrise or the glorious sunset, it cannot answer that question. Nature can tell us all about the fracture. It shows us the storms. It shows us the pain, the loss, the fear. They know these things. Late 19th century writer, English writer and philosopher, he's a Christian apologist, the guy did everything, G.K. Chesterton. He called these things, these things that show us the fall, he called them dragons. It's a great way of describing it. And I've always loved this quote of his. He said, he said, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. And he said, children already know they exist. Fairy tales tell dr- children that dragons can be killed. You see, they're like little parables. That's what fairy tales are. They're little parables. Short stories that illustrate or teach a deeper spiritual truth or principle. Jesus taught in parables. He told stories. And not just for kids, right? He told stories of mustard seeds and lamps under baskets and good Samaritans. He, he told stories of lost sheep and lost coins and, and lost sons. That was all just in one chapter. And, and they were all meant to accomplish one thing. That's what the parables of Jesus were meant to accomplish. One thing. They were to point us, to drive us, to, to move us back to the Lord. And so the young child asked the question, how did people, right, needy people, hurting people, blind people, deaf people, people who, people who love to sin. How were they able to be saved before Jesus 
was born. And the answer, and the answer is this, that just like for you and me today, it's, it's by faith. That's how they were saved before Christ, and that's how they're saved after Christ. The people, okay, God's, God's people in the Old Testament, God's people before the arrival of Jesus, they look forward to His coming. They had faith that God would send a Redeemer, that God would send a Savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would stomp out the dragon, even if it meant bruising his own heel. They walked in hopeful anticipation. That's what faith is. That God, here it is, they walked in faith that God would do what God had promised to do. Look at what the psalm says. Look at verse 10. He preserves the lives of his saints. And his saints, he actually defines that in the line right before. It's a beautiful way of defining it. He says, they are those who love the Lord. That word preserves is an absolute verb. I don't do much grammar in here, but it means that, that God preserves them completely. So he doesn't guess, right? He's not, he's not trying to find the right recipe. Like he knows exactly. And so God doesn't hope. Like you ever think about this? God never hopes. God doesn't have to hope. The Lord never needs faith. He is sovereign over all. And so he, he preserves his saints. He, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. This is the witness of Scripture. We saw it at Daniel earlier this year, didn't we? After King Darius threw Daniel to the lions. It was the king himself. It was the very king who had thrown Daniel to the lions who made this proclamation that the Lord delivers and rescues. This is what he does. And look at verse 11. Here's what the psalmist writes. He says he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Then he says light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. You see, this is the promise of God. And it's presented as an absolute fact. It's, it's presented as, as though it's already happened. Because when God says something, he doesn't have to hope. He doesn't have to have faith. It, if he says it, it is. And do you see that? That light, light is sown for the righteous. Those are the people of God. They've walked in darkness. That's what Isaiah 9 says, right? We know this one. This, we read it at Christmas time every year, right? That the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a what? A great light. That light in Isaiah 9 is the promise of God. Isaiah didn't know Jesus' name yet. Today we have the benefit. Here's the beautiful. Here's the flip side of what that young child asked yesterday. The flip side is, is we get to look backwards. We get to look backward at the promise fulfilled in Christ. We look back to that day knowing that the Lord kept His word. Knowing that he, like, knowing that God delivered on his promise. And, and what the Gospel of John says is that in him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Here's, here's John 1 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. By the way, that's a memory verse right there. Because you're going to find yourself in some darkness. And we're going to need to remember the truth in that darkness. That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the Lord sees us in our sin. He sees us in our misery. He sees us in the darkness. And Jesus says later that the people loved the darkness. Now, that's a weird twist. I heard someone in an interview recently, they were, they were asked why the world is such a mess. By the way, if you listen to enough podcasts, everybody's trying to answer that question. 
There's literally not a podcast that exists that isn't trying to answer that one. They all just have different perspectives, and some are more creative and, and more entertaining trying to get there. But that's what they wanted. Why is the world such a mess? And this person, I have no idea who it was, but they gave the best answer I've ever heard. Why is the world such a mess? And here it was, because people love to sin. <laughs> Nailed it. I don't have like a whatever. That is the answer. Why is the world such a wreck today? People love to sin. Why are so many people hurting and broken? Because people love to sin. Why does my friend, my wife, my cousin, my neighbor, why are they all? Because people love to sin. We still love the darkness. But here's the good news for us. Praise God that His promises aren't conditioned on our affections. Praise God that He keeps His promise. He sent His Son, right? He sent the light, and the light was sown. You know what to be sown is? It's to be scattered like a seed. You see, Jesus was scattered for you. He was sown for you. John 12, 24 says that unless a grain of wheat, that's a seed of wheat, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Listen to me. Jesus is the seed of light in the darkness. And he came to the earth just as God promised, and he died for you. I can say that without any hesitation today, with no doubt that he died in your place, that he took the darkness, he took the sin, he took my sin, your sin, our collective sin, all the sin on himself at the cross, bearing our grief, carrying our sorrows. He was, what does it say? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. But that's not it. That's not it. Here's the promise. Laying aside his power, laying aside his preeminence, Jesus made good on the promise, and with his wounds, we are healed. And so what do we do with that? It's not overly complicated. You've been given life through his death, that's the exchange. It's the most one-sided deal that has ever put, been put forward. It's the most scandalous trade in the history of trades. It's his perfect life for your complete sin. And so what do we do? Look at verse 12. Look at 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous. You're only righteous because God has given you His righteousness. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Our God gave it all for you. All. He did not hold back. And He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our thanks. Psalm 97, y'all, is a call to worship. It's a call to worship the one true and living God. Let the earth Rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Yeah, maybe he, may he be glorified in our lives today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you do not count our sins against us, but you have given them to our substitute. Jesus, thank you for bearing our sin, taking our shame, dying in our place. Holy Spirit, thank you that you make this known to us. I pray that you would make it more known today. Help us to walk in the knowledge of your power, of your preeminence, and Lord, of your promise. Help us to walk in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.